Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, one and all, to the second Wiki Game Guides Comcast. I'm Simon Wu. And I'm Alex Miller. And we want to start this week with our new segment, Community Callback, where we take all the listener comments and emails that you guys sent in. So let's get to it. Well, our first one from Pig-Headed Bobobo, and I'm pretty sure that's a reference to the manga Bobobo Bobobo, which I'm a fan of. It's pretty good stuff. But it reads, Great cast, guys. Glad to see some people besides B who actually read the book. I think that's supposed to be besides me. I'm a huge Halo fan, so I'm glad you guys touched on it in a huge way since Dan and John barely talked about it. Personally, from what I understand, Spartan Ops will be a separate co-op campaign basically to prevent people from trading it in. I would just like to point out, however, that Pokemon was actually the first major franchise to re-release games. Well, bo 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 we, uh, Simon and I, would pretty much agree with that sentiment as far as Spartan Ops go. We think it's basically going to be, as you say, a co-op campaign that will just be continuously added to and just try and give it, the game a little bit more longevity. All right. Our second comment is from Millennium Master 18 who says, Since Dan and John were the factor that attracted me to Wiki Game Guides, I listened to this podcast in a semi-defensive stance. Parentheses, I am indeed a geek who is afraid of change. Well, at least in here. And out of parentheses, I eased out a bit uh, around the fourth of the way through, though. You did well for your first time. Let's see how this plays out over subsequent iterations of this podcast. And him uh, referring, obviously, to our comments last week in the Comcast where we talked about geeks hating change, protesting change. So thank you for that. Next is Dalton32389, who says, Audio had noticeable echo, like you were recording in a garage or something. I listened to the whole thing as I played Fez. You two are well-spoken and knowledgeable. The audio needs work. Thanks. Well, that was uh, brevity there, but thank you so much for the comment. We've tried to do uh, a lot this week. We've done a significant amount of work to try and improve uh, both the audio levels and uh, our recording area. So hopefully, listening to this, it sounds a bit better. All right, our next comment from... uh, I'm just going to pronounce this rage quit. uh, The two letters in the middle of the words are just reversed. He said, Woohoo! A gaming podcast on a gaming website saves me skipping through an hour or so of movie chat. And that's what I assume is just pouring through Dan and John's various commentaries and walkthroughs and drink-alongs for any nuggets of, you know, gaming analysis they might provide. We're trying to condense that and concentrate it all right here in this Comcast. So thanks for that. Yeah, that was that was pretty much our inspiration for for this whole project was to try and take those little bits of, of gaming discussion and turn it into a, a full discussion. So next from Dick Sickle is, I do feel bad that the other community podcast died. I had fun, but unfortunately the host became lazy and decided to end it. But we're moving on to bigger and better things, such as this great podcast. I really enjoyed it. Different from Two Chimps, but I much prefer more topic-based discussion like this podcast. Well, thanks so much, Dick Sickle. As I said, we tried to put a lot of work into this. Simon especially does a very good job writing out these scripts where we try and stay on topic as much as possible and try and address these questions that we think you guys would have or would like to hear discussed. All right, next is Brody Tits, who says, Much better than our old podcast. I hope to be a part of it in the future. And Explicit Baron, uh, regular on the site with our next comment. I have to agree with you guys. Star Wars Battlefront 1 and Mercenaries 1 were great multiplayer games, although uh, I guess you mean Mercenaries 2 because Mercenaries 1 didn't have multiplayer. It was Mercenaries 2 that had co-op. Anyways, he continues, I'm talking about split-screen multiplayer. Those games should come to the Xbox 360 and PS3 with online multiplayer. No need for an HD upgrade. They're that good. And uh, while I agree with the sentiment expressed, I do think that LucasArts owes us just a little bit at this point. The least they could do is give us an HD refresh, um, because otherwise we could just do backwards compatible games. But thanks for the comment. Next is Solukfluxian, I think. Sorry if I butchered that. I totally agree on what you said about KOTOR. They should totally release an HD remake. I want to kill Sith Lords with Candorous Ordo on my side, just like in the old days. 
And, sir, and or madam, I would have to completely agree with that sentiment. As Simon will jokingly say, I am a Fandalorian. I love Mandalorians, you know. I was that little kid who loved Boba Fett as their favorite Star Wars character. So Kander Sordo was always in my party, and I love playing with him. So I agree with that. So if we ever do hopefully see an HD remake of that, like we talked about last week, then I'll be right there with you playing with him on my side. All right, and so we were a little light on uh, other viewer suggestions or um, submissions. We got one email, but um, that's fine because for our first podcast to have as much response as we've already covered, um, I think it's pretty fantastic. And I think it says a lot about the, the Wiki Game Guys community as a whole, what an excellent group of people we have here who are ready to jump in and participate in something new and to give something like this a chance. So we're really grateful to you guys and you know, hopefully we can get the ball rolling and if you guys can send it to your friends, show it to your coworkers, whoever you think might be interested, we can just add to it. Uh, I think this would be great. So our uh, article this week is The Collapse of Free Radical Design and this was a uh, this was in response to our discussion last week about Battlefront 3. This was apparently a new a relatively new games industry article where executives talked about the behind the scenes um, and the politics, the business politics of making Star Wars Battlefront 3. Uh, in 2007, Free Radical Design, after the success of Battlefront 2, they were tasked with making the sequel Battlefront 3. However, LucasArts had some. However, LucasArts had had some good people in charge who were project driven and really ready to spend the money and spend the time to making the excellent products that we'd seen in Battlefront 1 Battlefront 2. However, some shift happened, some shakeup occurred where a new project manager was brought in who was not nearly as committed to the project and who ultimately tried to weasel their way out in any way possible. However, they were contractually bound, so they couldn't outright drop the game. So what Free Radical executives have come out and said is basically they tried to make their lives living hell. Yeah, more or less. I mean, um, it's about at this time that almost the entire top level of LucasArts was reshuffled and a lot of heads rolled. So Free, Ra- Free Radical Design, basically LucasArts canceled the projects, paid a f- huge fee for it uh, because they violated the contract. Um, and Free Radical Design had already overhired to try and meet LucasArts' suddenly dramatic demands, and then suddenly there was nothing left. They were overstaffed, and they were in trouble. And the, the tragic element of this is that they were pretty much there. That This was what the article said, that they were on the verge of releasing a finished product. Yeah, I think they said something along the lines of they were pretty far along in, in beta testing for the game. And... To, before canceling the contract, LucasArts had just added these ridiculous milestones to the project where they had to be met. And the thing with milestones for games is that, you know, it's a it's pretty gray area whether or not they've been met. And so LucasArts was using this to say, oh, well, you haven't held up your side of the contract. And so they would keep adding more and more difficult things, which led to this overhiring. And as soon as the project was dropped, this overstaffing meant that free radical basically collapsed. Yeah, I mean, they were parceled off and bought by Crytek. They made that game Haze, which was, um, everyone doesn't remember at all because it was so irrelevant and terrible in a technical sense at that point. So that's, that's what's come of them. So it's, it's, a tra- it's a tragic fall from grace and, again, just another reason to hate LucasArts for taking this away from us. And now... I don't want to start geeking out again, but uh, this viewer, or listener, I should say, mentioned something that just got me thinking and just got me super excited and then depressed because we'll never have it. Battlefront 3 Horde Mode. So with the proliferation of these kind of Nazi zombies, survival, Left 4 Dead games, you know, Horde in Gears of War 3, obviously... What if you were a side, like say you were 16 Republic soldiers, 16 player co-op, then you had a series of barriers that you had to set up and defend against an unrelenting, let's say, battle droid army. And a lot of you, maybe 10 of you were frontline soldiers, but then six of you were specialists, snipers, rocket launchers, engineers, and you, three or four of you were tasked with holding a specific choke point. 
and depending on the type of enemy came, maybe threw, they threw a vehicle at you. You would call up, radio your guy, your missile guy, to come deal with it. Or if your turret got destroyed, you'd radio for help from your engineer. And then commanders would be running around uh, buffing everyone. And then as they slowly overwhelmed you, you'd fall back to another defense point and maybe consolidate with the, another team. Then finally, you'd move back to a central choke point command point which you had to hold and then just inexorably just got overwhelmed that sound that would sound like such incredible fun and the interesting thing is this could have been possible with battlefront 3 coming out in 2007 which is something we see almost a mix of in battlefront 3 coming out in 2007 which is a mix of things we see now several years later in games like battlefield 3 and their multiplayer with the multi-class roles but then also something like Halo, which has their firefight mode. Right. And so thank you so much for that uh, story, and please keep them coming. We hope that more of our listeners will take this kind of active participation in uh, the Comcast in the future. So now let's move on to our actual, your regularly scheduled programming, our topics for this week. Call of Duty Black Ops 2. We acknowledge it exists. And that's it. Anything else at this point is conjecture. We've seen a trailer. Thank you. Moving on. Yeah, exactly. I would just like to mention briefly that for any stories we pull, we are now including links for those in our show notes. And maybe after we get enough of an involved audience, we might host the show notes on Google Docs so that the community can add to them, modify them, add some comments on there. So just another avenue for you guys to interact. Because our ultimate goal is to make this as completely interactive and uh, participatory for you guys as possible. We want this to be your microphone, you know, your voice, your role in speaking for the gaming community and the gaming world. So hopefully we can move towards that. We'd love your help if we can move towards that goal. Let's start with our first topic of today. Earning reports galore, which means everything sucks for everyone. Now, Microsoft, Nintendo, and Sony all have huge losses in gaming revenue in the past quarter. Sony's PlayStation division alone has taken a $2.8 billion loss. Nintendo loss, had losses amounting to, I think, $531 million overall. And I think, Simon, is, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is the first time in 20 years that Nintendo as a company has faced a loss. Yes, I think this is, they reported their first annual loss ever, so that's really saying something. And now, finally, Microsoft's Entertainment and Devices division also had a loss. It's a soft leader at 42% market share, but considering its revenue fell 16%, but more importantly, console sales were down 48%, that's, uh, we've got some problems here. Moving on from the NPR Marketplace section of the podcast. Simon, do you think this is a sign that the consoles need to be revised faster and generate some new interest, or are people just not interested in console gaming as much? Are we seeing a return to PCs, or do you think the market is oversaturated? What do you, what do you think is the, the cause of this? Well, if we kick, back, kick this back to our uh, last podcast discussion, where I was the one that said, was bullish about the consoles, the next-gen consoles being released in the next year or two, then I definitely think this is the market crying out for demand. Yeah, and given these numbers, Simon, given these numbers, Simon, my position last time, I need to revise that because these numbers would definitely suggest that we need something quicker. Right. We know that Microsoft is trying to stay alive with a a ton of special editions, but there's really only so much you can push. There has to be a legitimate revisions soon in technical specs and we see this with their silver special edition controllers with the gimmicky d-pad like twirl up and we've also seen this with uh miller i think you i said this last week but i still think you'd enjoy it uh the rural britannia special edition xbox 360 as well also the the new star wars connect bundle for the xbox and connect and the new star wars game so i think all these, all these new bundles, you know, they're interesting, they're neat, they're something different. But like you said, we need some new tech specs because I think at this point people are realizing it's just a gimmick and it's kind of neat and interesting, but it's not something that I'm going to drop 200 300 400 on. 
Now, let's see. Motion Gaming gave Microsoft and Sony, to a lesser degree, a nicer cushion to fall on for this past fiscal year. But it's still a fall, nonetheless. Microsoft, you, we heard the Kinect numbers. They were pretty amazing, like the best-selling consumer device of all time in like the first week or whatever. It still wasn't enough, and Sony was hurt even more because the move just didn't take off like they wanted to. And then Nintendo, well, Nintendo is just getting hammered on all sides. Motion gaming by the obviously more popular Kinect and the fact that they just aren't selling like they used to. And on the, the DS is getting absolutely obliterated by iOS and mobile gaming. With the, they updated, they tried to update the Nintendo DS, they made the Nintendo DSi, and I think even a newer version of that with, they tried to add larger screens and 3D, you know, all these, like I said, gimmick features that they might add a little bit, but it's not that much more. And when you consider the convenience of having something like an iPhone or an Android in your pocket or a Windows phone for that matter, having it in your pocket where you can just whip it out, play a game, and at this point we're seeing some pretty impressive games on these platforms. Games that I think can very easily rival games on the Nintendo DS. And when you consider that you don't have to carry around an extra device, I think that's why the DS is just getting absolutely destroyed in this market. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Sony was out with a report that the Vita has only sold 1.8 million units. That's terrible. And considering they've been really pinning their hopes on this for a little while, and I've played with the Vita, and one of my friends has it. It's, I mean, design-wise, it's it's a nice product. It's fun to play with. It feels good in the hand. It's the right size. You can do a lot with it. But just going back to the convenience thing, it's just it's too much to expect people to go out and buy that just for a long plane ride or a long car ride or something because you're not going to be carrying that around with you through most of the day, through most of your time, in the same way that you're going to be carrying around your iPhone or your Android or your Windows phone. Right. Now, we should stress that this isn't just Nintendo's problem that they're getting destroyed by mobile gaming. It's also eating at Sony and Microsoft tremendously. Microsoft, uh, you mentioned their Windows phone, although it's, I would argue, the most closely integrated because of its Xbox Live hub and gaming services, still has yet to take off. Sony did some half-hearted attempts with their failed Sony Ericsson Venture and their Xperia Play, which was their Android smartphone that had the slide-out gaming controller. They just haven't taken off. Because I think with with those things, it's much more over-the-top, like this is what they're aiming at. And I think the wonderful thing about the iPhone and the Android in particular is that it's just it's a phone you're carrying with you. It just happens to have these extra features versus something like the Xperia where, yeah, it's a phone, but it's pretty clear what you'd be using it for because it has that slide-out gaming pad then I think that just sort of takes away from it because you're losing other features to gain this, you know, this extra touchpad that you're not going to even use all that much and that it, it just doesn't seem worth it. And obviously we see that the attempts to boost entertainment service offerings is just clearly a way to try and guard against it. But we have to consider, how much is this going to help? And is gaming, I mean, I'm sad to say it, going to be resigned to a small part of the device? We've already seen that Microsoft a while ago announced that more time is spent not gaming than gaming. And this goes back to our discussion last week where we were talking about is the Xbox still a console in focus or is it a home media device? And I think this would suggest to the trend that it's, you know, most devices are shifting towards uh, a multifaceted approach to entertainment. If we look back uh, maybe five or six years or so, there was the great schism, the first great schism between PCs and the consoles. Maybe it was even earlier than that. But hardcore PC gamers all went to their dedicated Alienware Origin main gear super gaming PCs, and they played Crisis, and it was good. And then the rest of us, who was not as hardcore or involved, went over to consoles. Now here we might see the second great schism, where console gamers are now the minority. We are the hardcore in the consoles versus the smartphone and tablet split. And Simon, just to add to that earlier, I think any true hardcore PC gamer probably builds their own rig. (laughs) And indeed, 
the thing is with that though, it's it's much more difficult to do that, which is why a lot of people went to console gaming because of the convenience. And it was you know it was easy. You'd go to Best Buy or Radio Shack or Circuit City. May they rest in peace. <laughs> uh, uh, and you you know you drop two hundred, two fifty, three hundred, whatever it was. You'd get your console and you'd get your game and you'd get your peripheries and you'd be set. You'd go home, plug it in. It's good to go. Don't need to install anything. You just sit down with the controller in your hand and play a game. And it was easy and it was fun. Whereas on a computer, you probably first of all have to build the thing. While rewarding, it's hard and it takes a while. And once you're done with that, you have to update drivers, update software, you have to go up, buy the game, you have to then install the game, update the game, download patches, and then you can finally play the game. And that's fun, but it takes a long time, and a much longer time than it takes to set up a console. And a lot of people didn't see the benefits of a PC being greater graphics, greater processing, all these things, wonderful but it's not worth the trade-off of not being able to just sit down and play. And I think we're seeing the exact same fault lines today with iPhone and Android versus console gaming. Because console gaming now is the much more involved process because you have to actually leave your home. You have to drive somewhere and buy a game. You have to get a physical thing and bring that home and put it in your device or go out and buy the device and put it in your home versus the iPhone, the Android, the Windows phone, you pull it out of your pocket, you you know poke the screen twice with your finger, and boom, you've got a game. So I think we're, it's, it's going back to last week where we talked about it's always making things easier. I think this is going to be the constant struggle going forwards in games is would you like it better or would you like it easier? Yeah, that's great comments there, Alex. And let's take a look at the gaming landscape for the next year or so. We've got Black Ops 2. Assassin's Creed 3, and Halo 4. Now, they'll keep Sony and Microsoft alive, maybe on life support, for the upcoming year. But then what? The Assassin's Creed trilogy is over. Ubisoft always said it would end to time it correctly with the December 21st, 2012 deadline, both in-game and out-of-game, to make it more kind of timely. By the way, Simon, I'm totally planning on playing that game from day one, but pacing it out so that I finish it December 21st. Interesting strategy there. Halo 5 is at least three years away if we go back to our last week's discussion and say that uh, 343 keeps up the same release schedule that Bungie did. Now, there will be another COD for sure, and I'm sure it'll set all the new records and whatever, but yeah, okay. Then what? What's next? What else is there if we assume that they intend to drag this out for four or five more years, what is there for them? I mean, I, I think this goes back to discussions that have been throughout the gaming world for a long time, is have we seen a decline in new IPs? Because it feels like year after year, the past couple of years, we've just seen sequels and redux and remake and split off. We've seen Gears of War 3, Mass Effect 3, all these games that are just continuing something else that's come out previously. There's not a lot of original content on the market, which is what I think we're going to have to see a lot more of if Microsoft and Sony plan to keep their current consoles on the market. They're either going to need to come out with new consoles, with new IPs, or they're going to need to come up with some pretty good new IPs to try and keep the current consoles afloat. And Nintendo has the Wii U. We've already said our feelings on that. That's pretty much... Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Now, there leaves only one reason, one conceivable reason, for the Xbox V-Next to be in the next five to six years. Only one. And it's the rumor that it will have the Windows 8 Core. And now that doesn't sound very exciting from, you know, a non-power user, non-geek perspective, but it will that means it will be totally unified in the back-end architecture with your Windows 8 PCs and your Windows 8 phones. And so that will finally make cross-platform games really feasible. Up to this point, we've only really seen gimmicks thus far in this, the uh, arena. We've only seen maybe tech demos. But now we could actually see you start a game and then finish it or play cross-platform with multiplayer. And this this could be Microsoft's answer to that issue we were talking about before, was phone versus console. Because as you mentioned earlier, 
they do have Xbox Live built into the Windows Phone architecture already. And once that's been updated to the Windows 8 architecture, then I think you could start a game on one device, save, go to another, save, go to another, and you've got this all the way across. And so I think that's that would be their, their way to address that issue if they plan to wait. Also, we might finally see widespread proliferation of apps onto Xbox from the PC and the phone and vice versa and, you know, any combination of the three. And our next topic on the docket today, the new 360 SKU that Microsoft recently launched at $99 with a $15 a month contract for two years for Xbox Live Gold. And there's an early termination fee and all of these things that we're used to seeing more on cell phones, really. So, clearly, it's another tactic to try and shore up the sagging console revenues, this tying back into our last discussion on the previous segment, but also because you can lock it in with gold and have more regular revenue streams than just an expensive item that someone purchases once. It'll also move more units because consoles are lost leaders, and really, the money is made in the games. And not only in the games, but in online purchases and in online streaming services uh, like Hulu and Netflix, which have agreements with Xbox to work through their Xbox Live Gold. So, are we seeing a new and potentially successful business model where we have almost cell phone carrier-esque stipulations and arrangements? Or is that going to be why it fails so hard? Is it the stigma of cell phone carrier contracts, or is it the fact that they're so ubiquitous? Which side is it going to fall on? Well, one key difference that I see, at least in this dichotomy between the cell phone plan and the newer Xbox plan, would be that consoles and console technology doesn't advance as rapidly. One of the things that makes cell phone contracts so annoying and so cumbersome is that by the time you get out of your contract two years on, your phone is completely outdated and it's so far behind that for most people it's almost unusable if you're that if you're that sort of tech person. Versus a console, I've had my Xbox 360, or one of them, I got a second one more recently, but my first one I've had for, I don't know, five or six years. I've had it for quite a long time and so if someone were to get this contract and get the xbox at a much reduced price i think that makes a lot more sense in at least a monetary way because you're more likely to use it at its current capabilities for much longer this is the problem though because and again we seem to be basing all of our conjecture and discussion on when are these next generations of consoles going to come out, we just don't know. But if it's one or two years removed, then it Microsoft could potentially be screwing over the people that are going to buy these devices. They'll be midway in the contract, and look at this, the Xbox V-Next, great graphics, you know, improved performance, smaller, lighter, more efficient, better services... Now what? And that will be the interesting thing to watch, whether or not this really gets off the ground. However, regardless of if it does, I think going forwards to the next generation of consoles, this idea should be seriously discussed. Probably won't be originally, or shouldn't say originally, should say early on, because the Xbox VNX, PlayStation VNX, will most likely sell very well Looking you know, based on trends, will probably sell very well once it comes out, and will con- continue to do so for maybe the first six months, first year, year and a half. But I think once we get past that year and a half, two-year mark in the next console life, we could see a plan like this come out. And I think at that point in time, where we're much farther removed from the next gener- generation of consoles, I think will make a lot of sense then, and I hope we see it then if it doesn't do well now. And this brings us to our next question. Do people really care? And by people, I mean us, the hardcore gaming community, as we've already established in our past segment, who we are. We really don't care. This is for casual gamers. This is a ploy to try and get the Angry Birds 
iOS casual gaming demographic involved because it's a four gigabyte console with Connect, two features that we aren't necessarily we don't necessarily care very much about, and also the fact is that. We've all done the math, and there all the blogs on the internet have done the math. They found it actually doesn't save you any money. It just kind of reconfigures the payments in a different way. But if you are a casual gamer, you've been on the fence, then it suddenly is very appealing that it's familiar. It's like a payment that you do every month, just like so many other things in life. And also, it has a very low upfront cost. It's a very good gateway drug. But it kind of makes you wonder why we keep doing it for phones, you know, where they'll make more money. In fact, I mean, this deal is actually not. You pay about 20 or so dollars more than if you bought it outright on the day and just walked out of it. But I think this is the thing you see, going back to our discussion about handheld games on phones, is that the really successful games, at least I, what I think of as the really successful games, are those games that have very low upfront costs a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, but then have a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of map packs, extra content, you know, all these little things that you can add on for, you know, 50 cents here, a dollar here, whatever it may be, but the nickel and dime you, and you don't even usually realize at the time because you're having so much fun that, oh, I'm happy to pay this. It's like the, we've seen all these reports of parents getting hit by thousand, two thousand three thousand dollar bills from facebook or whoever because their kids are just building i don't know what what are the what do they play these days building like the ultimate farm actually that was like two months ago farmville was already way gone it's like draw something or whatever it is farmville is like three or four years ago now at this point that alone that statement alone should tell you how little i care for casual gaming and simon is probably the most anti-casual gaming person I know. He is outright against it. Yeah, more or less. And, well, let's move on to, away from my just utter diatribe, we'll save that for another uh, episode. But, more seriously, can this trend continue? Could we then see Sony and Nintendo adopting it? Sony, Nintendo maybe undercutting the Xbox price with, like, a bargain basement price. Let's say $50. $50 plus a contract for something. What if it goes beyond gaming contracts then, or game consoles? Well, what if we buy a TV subsidized, or get a free Roku? If you pay for two years of Netflix or Hulu Plus, what is this possible? Could we get a free, uh, like, Galaxy S player or, you know, iPod? I don't know about iPod, because Apple surely wouldn't do this. But a free MP3 player if you sign up for a two years of Last.fm. Or slacker radio. This opens up a whole new realm of possibilities if it really does well for a whole different model to take over for the way we think about buying technology. And part of me, Simon, part of me thinks that this will be a good thing because, as we've seen on economies of scale, the more things people buy, the more of an object they buy, the price will generally go down for everyone. So for things like Roku or TVs, these things that aren't game consoles, I think I'd be happy to see something like this because it means more people are buying it, which means the price is going down, which means we can all enjoy it. However, I I side with you, at least for the present, on the issue of the Xbox, the PlayStation, Wii is irrelevant, whereas the next version will be coming out soon. Can they successfully sell this contract? I'm not sure. But I do think it would be an interesting business plan to spread out and I think one of the things that's been the most fascinating at least for me in the last several years is to see how different companies finding their new niches how they monetize that and how they develop different business plans so I think this could be an entirely new business plan and if it's successful all power to them and perhaps again we're missing the entire point we said it was for casual gamers maybe that's that's it you know maybe they won't care that there's another xbox that could be six times better if they're just using netflix and hulu plus it's the same for everyone as far as that's concerned because software you can always put it on the current platform hardware is what you're limited by and so 
we, we just wonder what would happen if we just step out of our ivory tower for a second because I'm, you know, a computer power user and then a hardcore gamer. It's really easy for me to stare at it and just not wonder what's going on with it and not understand. But really, if we have to look at it from the average Joe angle, then does it make sense that you will probably be in the middle of a contract when you get when the next one comes out? I mean, these are all questions that we'd like to post to you guys. And as just with last week, post in the comments, forums, email us, wherever you want to send it to us. We'd be happy to get your input. And whatever you have to say, we'd be happy to talk about it next week. All right, our next topic, console carryover. And this is an important topic to consider as we move forward, knowing that the next generations of consoles are coming. Again, we have to go back to the definition of when they're coming, but that's not important right now. What we're talking about is backwards compatibility. What kind of games do we want carried over from this generation? And as I thought about this question, I really was surprised to discover that there are not a whole lot of standout games from this generation that I just scream to be ported over. I have to have them. Gotta play them on you know, the Xbox V next. It was really easy and really um, simple and decisive for Xbox to Xbox 360. I wanted Kodor. I wanted Battlefront. I wanted Mercenaries. I wanted Midtown Madness 3. These sorts of games that really stood out to us. And I'm wondering, we're wondering, if that's more indicative of the way games are released now and the release schedules, release patterns that game publishers now use. And Simon, to your point, I think a certain part of that may just be nostalgia because those are the games we remember from when we were first getting into games and those were some of the, you know, the best times we had playing those games and we had a lot of fun. But as far as the new kinds of release cycle you're talking about, I think that that definitely does contribute because before you would have a game come out and then if there was a sequel, it would be probably a couple years down the line and not immediately versus now you've got COD, you know, you've got COD 2012, COD 2013, COD 24, or whatever the actual title is. But essentially it's this year's installment of the Call of Duty franchise. And you're getting into this more and more with more and more games. A lot of people were afraid that Halo was going to turn into this with 343's takeover. Hopefully we don't see that. We see a, a bit more time and effort put into that. But I definitely think that more rapid release cycles, and I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier where we saw a lack of original IPs. I think the, you know, the people just recycling using the same thing over again, is contributing to this lack of, for for, back, for lack of a better term, sticking power, like in our, in our minds. Right. And unpriceable nostalgia, well, I see a very easy marketing opportunity with this. When the Xbox transitioned to the Xbox 360, when the PS2 transitioned to the PS3, GameCube to the Wii, there was not this infrastructure of internet broadband that we have now, they had to provide an immediate way to transition you, and that way was backwards compatibility. But now, we have games on demand. We can instantly download a game um, that we've always wanted if they simply throw it up online, which they're increasingly doing. What if they just try and sell it to you again? You know, they say, this is here. You want it? Here, you can download a digital copy of it if you pay us. Or is it going to be, here, register your game by putting it in the tray, and then we'll see that you have it, and you'll get a free download code for your new console. Well, Simon, I think, at least initially, your second idea, the, the registering, would be incredibly difficult just to, be, just to try and verify something like that without the uh, hardware and the infrastructure set up ahead of time. To do that, I think that maybe if they somehow knew games were coming out right before the launch of the next console, they could Microsoft or some developer could somehow develop some technology and build it into the disc, into the game ahead of time. But without that sort of forethought and 
prior planning, I don't think that the registering idea would work. However, for your games on demand, I think it all comes down to an issue of pricing. You know, depending on how much it's going to cost, I think some fans would be willing to pay for it. And this is referencing our earlier discussion about HD remakes, because if they add content, you definitely would pay for that. But just for the straight game, I think a lot of people would be a lot less willing to buy that, especially if they still have the disc, which is an issue that I've seen, at least, with PC gaming, a lot with Steam, where you, if you're trying to purchase an expansion pack on Steam, you have to have the original game on Steam. Like, I can't use my copy of Rome Total War or Medieval 2 Total War to buy the various expansion packs for those games using the Steam service. I would have to have the original game on Steam for both. So it'll, it'll be interesting going forward to see what they do choose to do, and I think it's, it's open to go in a lot of different directions. Another concern that I have about putting them on games on demand is the lack of curation and really follow-up that we see uh, these companies putting into their games on demand services. I mean, I personally know from the Xbox Live Marketplace that these titles, which are pennies, just a few dollars on Steam, are still, you know, $19.99, $25.99, $39.99, and they have not changed even though they were released three, four, five years ago. Yeah, I saw actually a funny picture. Uh, I think it was on Reddit or I think it was Reddit the other day where uh, the caption was, this is why PC games win, and it showed a Steam sale where a game was reduced, you know, a ridiculous amount as Steam often does something like 75% off, 80% off, making the game like 2 or $3. And then it showed with this, like, a picture with the same date showing the game in a store, like a physical copy, selling for like forty nine ninety nine. So it's, it's just, it, it, is, it is sort of ridiculous that they, the pricing hasn't really updated itself. Clearly a play from the companies to try and milk convenience, the price of convenience. You know, that's your convenience fee. But if we have these successful services like Steam, how much pressure is that going to apply? Or is it because it's a monopoly, do they really just get the luxury of charging whatever they want? And that's for games. But I had I brought up this topic, more importantly, for the hardware. We've all spent a ridiculous fortune on, you know, four controllers, a wireless headset, a chat pad... Uh, maybe a racing wheel if you're into that sort of thing. We've a lot of people have invested in a Kinect. Will those? Can you use those when the next console generation comes out? They'd earn a tremendous amount of goodwill if the controller stayed the same and you were allowed to use them. But I have a feeling that they might just say, "Yeah, no, nope, you can't use it." Guess what? You paid sixty dollars for each controller. You have four of them. You got a wireless headset. Easily three hundred, four hundred, five hundred dollars in some instances, gone. Can't use it. Here now, spend another three hundred, four hundred, five hundred dollars. Simon, I think though that what you spent there is for the use of the product while you've had it, while you've been using it with the current generation. And I think controllers. I do think controllers have to be updated, and I would hope that the controllers would be updated because that would mean new tech specs, new capabilities, and advances for the system. However, for more of the peripheries that you were mentioning, I think, and I, I do hope for this, that they can be transferred over. One of the issues with peripheries going from the Xbox to the Xbox 360 was the difference in connection. You would have those weird right. little the, yeah. the weird little circular dongles that you, you plug into the Xbox, it's its own proprietary port, versus the Xbox 360, everything was USB. And now if they continue that standard that using USB across all peripheries, I think it could be both a lot easier and a lot more doable to just update drivers or include the capabilities for these peripheries to be used. And I would be surprised if they blocked it, unless, of course, they did something like where they blocked USB sticks from being used on the early... 360, where they're just trying to block you to get more money out of you. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully they've learned from that, and because there was a large fan backlash against that, 
but who knows. Um, so please let us know what you guys think about that. And right now we're going to move on to our final topic of this podcast, the online service free-for-all that's currently brewing and is a major problem for uh, Xbox, Microsoft, PS3, and Sony, maybe with the Wii U and Nintendo if they intend those to be set-top boxes. They're really counting on third parties to play nice and not kill each other. Because as we said, they're really trying to hit that home media market. But a major part of that is having all these services that they can provide that make their product more desirable than other products. And as we've seen with the Xbox and with the PlayStation, is they have Hulu streaming and Netflix streaming. And more recently, like Verizon streaming, Xfinity, Uverse, all these different content providers have uh, partnered up with Microsoft to stream their content on the Xbox. Um, so what the, the problem with that is that you're counting on all these people to play nice with each other, and the thing is, they don't. Uh, AT&T pulled its Uverse app and all of the equipment that went along with it last year, and Netflix just filed a complaint with the FCC citing net neutrality violations with AT&T, with Comcast, with Time Warner. Comcast and Time Warner have yet to pull their applications in the same way that Uverse has, but they were they were also the, the targets of that Netflix complaint. And the issue with it is Netflix is saying that as content providers, as well as ISPs, both Comcast and AT&T with its Uverse product, are able to stream their content at whatever speed they want to. They have control over the bandwidth for those services. However, for something like Netflix that's having to use an ISP to access their user, to access their paying customer, they were at least making the allegation that these ISPs were throttling, throttling down or could potentially throttle down their speeds to make it so that customers would look at Uverse or Xfinity or what have you more favorably and potentially switch away. Netflix said this was a violation of net neutrality, and that's a whole can of worms that I'm not necessarily going to get into at this time. But I think it's interesting and it almost threatening for the future of these consoles as media devices that they have to get these people, all, all these different ISPs, these content providers, everyone has to work together perfectly in perfect harmony or else the whole thing falls apart. I mean, we could see then a new wave of fragmentation occur as, let's just say, in a patchwork of states, a California court awards an injunction uh, for Netflix against AT&T. They have to pull their app. And then a judge in New York says Netflix is out of line and that AT&T can stay. But Netflix might get pulled. We'll, we'll have this entire patchwork of who can use what, where, and to what extent, and how much is offered? And don't forget, there's a whole nother, um, there's a whole nother dimension that we're leaving out, and we're just assuming it's going to stay constant, but it definitely won't. And that's the content creators, you know, um, with their licensing agreements with what they allow to stream or not stream. Yeah, I remember seeing an article the other day where uh, an executive at HBO was saying they thought. Uh, internet streaming and things like Netflix and Hulu were just a fad and that ultimately it's going to end up and going back on to cable channels, which is uh, what HBO is staying with, which is why they have yet to provide um, an internet-only streaming service. As probably many of you know, you have to have a cable subscription as well as an HBO subscription to access their content. Yeah, what we could end up seeing is consumers really getting hurt by having to pay for so many services. You, know, you pay for Hulu Plus, you pay for Netflix, you pay for Xbox Live Gold to ha actually access all these things. You pay for your cable bill and you pay for HBO. You pay for all of these things and you can't even access all of the content that they provide because they're just hammering each other with litigation. And really, it's A, the consumer that gets the short end, and B, 
it's really Microsoft and Sony that also get screwed by this because they're the ones that'll take a lot of the ire from us and from the casual users because they probably really don't know where else to deflect the blame, but it's really the telco's fault at the end, you know, if you trace it all the way back to its roots. So fragmentation is never good for any ecosystem as we'd seen. You know, an example would be the Windows Mobile devices going back or Android where this fragmentation of so many different specs and capabilities and all these things provided so that a standard standardization can't happen or isn't possible. And so when standardization isn't possible, these grand, massive new content things or new ideas or new programs can't happen because they can't access or can't reach everyone. And so they're not even launched because what's the point? I want to just add, I don't want to digress too far into making this a mobile phone uh, podcast, but I want to use it as an analogy to relate what could happen as this uh, console streaming service matures and the players get more involved. We see that 3% of Android phones are now running Ice Cream Sandwich. That's the latest operating system that Google's released. And Google I.O., which is their developer conference, is coming up soon. They will most likely announce Android 5.0, Jelly Bean, with almost nobody actually running their current operating system. We also see um, the various Android licensees openly battling each other while Apple and Microsoft stand on the sidelines taking pot shots and signing licensing deals and suing all the various Android vendors. And it's this entire Wild West um, environment that could very well emerge and will be the ones caught in the middle. And although I don't want to end on that, I just want to have one last um, solicitation, I guess, for you guys to comment, you guys to join in the discussion. Email us at comcastwgg at gmail.com. Visit our website, that's wggcomcast.blogspot.com. Comment below and all of those things. And so with that, thank you for listening.